This episode is brought to you by Douglas. Waking up in the morning can be so hard to do. You're tired. You do not want to get out of bed. These are not problems that I have because I sleep so incredibly well on my Douglas mattress. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and how I'm actually kind of starting to believe the U of T alumni office when they call me begging for money. I think maybe they actually really need it. You live in a kind of perpetual one step away from full adulthood, I would say. You want to buy a home. You want to have a mortgage. No, there's no retirement benefits. There's no, no anything like this of the kind. That's Morgan Rooney. He's a sessional instructor in the English department at Carleton University in Ottawa. And he thinks the life of a sessional instructor can be brutal. I think when you end up in grad school, you're very single-minded and focused. And I'd like to tell you that there's a path for you if you really try hard. But it's not true. And it has nothing to do with your skill. It has nothing to do with your interest. It's that the university is just hiring less and less full-time instructors. The university system now is built on the back of low-paid instructors like him. So teaching is a side gig for him. He also works for Carleton as an educational development coordinator, and the university treats him pretty well in that capacity. But he has a warning for wannabe teachers. You can love it all you want. It's not you want. It's not going to love you back. It's not going to. It's not going to pay you back. That would be discouraging for anyone to hear. You know, if they're they're twenty five or twenty six and they're finishing up a PhD. But you know what? Better to go in eyes wide open about about this stuff than to find yourself like I did, I think, at the tail end of a PhD, almost physically unable to imagine doing anything different. And that's where they get you, right? Like if you can't imagine any other source of meaning in your life than doing this thing, then you will teach for basically free and you will teach under those terrible circumstances. Lately, I've taken to referring to myself as a one-degree wonder. I have just a bachelor's degree in sexual diversity studies, which people love to laugh at, and that's it. When I finished my undergrad four years ago, right at the onset of the pandemic, I definitely thought about doing a master's degree and maybe even trying to build some sort of career in academia. After all, I had graduated into the worst job market since the 2008 financial crisis, so why not stave off reality for a few more years and do more school? I mean, I think I could be a good university instructor. I've done some lower-level teaching. I used to teach debate. I used to tutor the LSAT. And I love the university environment and sharing knowledge and ideas. But hearing the stories of sessional instructors like Morgan and, frankly, a lot of the instructors that I had in undergrad was sort of a reality check for me and should be for anyone in my shoes who's thinking about pursuing more education. Canadian universities are not doing so hot right now. They're actually kind of panicking. Laurentian University in Ontario declared insolvency a few years back. Queen's University is projecting a $48 million deficit this year. McGill has a hiring freeze on. And universities in Alberta have made big budget cuts. So, like, what's going on? 
I know a lot of students, people that I went to school with, people that I see talking online, we're all trying to pay off pretty high amounts of loans. People give universities lots of money, like tens and tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes hundreds if you're pursuing professional school in tuition fees. So it feels inconceivable that the schools are also broke. How did this happen? University funding comes from basically three sources. First, government funding, second, tuition fees, and third, private funding through things like business partnerships and alumni donations. Government funding has been pretty stagnant over the past decades, not rising with inflation. And in some cases, government funding to universities has actually decreased. On top of that, in Ontario, the government actually mandated a 10% decrease in domestic tuition fees in 2019, and fees have been frozen since then. So with frozen or stagnant domestic tuition and little to no increases in government funding, universities have had to get creative in terms of how they make sure that they're financially solvent. They started recruiting international students who they can charge much higher tuition fees to pad their wallets. But guess what? The federal government just put a strict limit on international study permits. It is the latest in a series of measures to improve program integrity, set international students up for the success in order to maintain a sustainable level of temporary residence in Canada as well. And then in Quebec, there's this whole other issue with English universities. The government is cracking down on enrollment for out-of-province and international students by hiking their fees. These universities are saying it may cripple their enrollment. Here's what Quebec Minister of Higher Education Pascal Derry had to say about it. It's not a measure. I'm not closing the doors to any Anglophone students who want to come to McGill or Concordia or Bishop. They will be able to come. It's just that we're not ready to continue funding that kind of policy. So, like I said, there's a lot going on. It's a bleak outlook and something's got to give. And it seems like it's students, after all, who are going to face the brunt of these budget cuts. So how can universities avoid what seems like a looming crisis? Our panelists today are Alex Usher and Simona Chiozzi. Alex is the president of Higher Education Strategy Associates, which provides up-to-date data on Canadian universities to help guide government and university policy. He's joining us, I believe, from Montreal. Hi, Alex. No, I'm in Toronto. You're in Toronto? Okay. The center of the universe, Toronto. Welcome. <laughs> Simona Chiozzi covered higher education at the Globe and Mail as a reporter and a senior editor for years and is now an adjunct professor in the political science department at the Royal Conservatory of Music. She also works in public affairs at the Government Relations Office at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Simona. Thanks so much, Matea. So nice to see you. All right, let's get into it. So I guess we're all joining the call from Ontario today. But Simona, I know you're working in Ontario institutions. Uh, I also went to the University of Toronto, my alma mater. So I want to start with chatting about Ontario, where it seems like things for most universities are pretty dire. What really shocked me was to learn that Queen's is in such bad financial straits. You know, people regard it as one of Canada's best institutions. There's, of course, also this whole situation with Laurentian declaring insolvency. And I know that a lot of northern universities in Ontario have been struggling. Last year, eight out of 23 universities in the province recorded a deficit. Like, how bad are things? Because as an external observer, it looks quite bad to me. How bad are they? I mean, you know, universities always manage and we do the best that we can with what is given. And I think the Queen's example is a really good one. We want to be really careful about making sure that students know that whatever it is, when they come on campus, they're still going to get a quality education. There's still going to be spaces for them. But it's not a great situation. And it's not a great situation when on one hand, 
We look to universities to create and to train people to to take on the jobs and to be great citizens. And on the other hand, we're not funding them. We're looking at shortfalls after after inflation. They're really becoming, I would say, almost historical in nature. I mean, I think what's unprecedented is just unprecedented in, in my time observing or being part of the sector is the number of things that are happening at the same time. So you have the international student issue, you have this lack of coordination between the provinces and the federal government. In Ontario, you have the tuition cut and freeze, you have the frozen operating funding, you have actually beginning real enrollment pressures. We're just beginning to see that. This year, there was an increase of 5% already in applications to the Ontario University's Application Centre. And then we have the needs of the economy and AI. And universities actually, you know, the, the teaching and research mission is really grappling with that. So how do we manage everything at the same time is a real question. I know that there's a lot of news that's been coming out even just in recent days. And so it does seem like there's a lot of uncertainty of how universities are going to respond to like all of these different changes that are happening. I think we will be lucky if the amount of money that the provincial government announces actually even meets inflation. Just everything I've heard. I tend to to divide operating revenue into three categories. And there's, there's what you get from the government, there's what you get from domestic students, and there's what you get from international students. And the international students are the only thing that's been going up in the last 10 or 11 years, okay? So so 100% of new operating revenue for universities has come from international students since about 2012. So I say, when I go on campuses, I say, you know, you if you've had a raise in the last 12 years, if you've been able to hire anybody new in the last 12 years, thank an international student. International student numbers are going to crater next year. I know there's a lot of people out there talking about, you know, oh, the number of visas is going down. How big is the visa cap going down? Nobody's hitting their cap next year. Nobody's hit. Like, it's just that fall off in processing and the fall off in in applications that we're seeing over the last three, four weeks, I think makes it very, I think that the incoming class will probably drop by about 40% at most institutions. Now, places like U of T, it's not going to matter as much because it's a, a majority of their students are in the master's and PhD sections. And so they're sort of, they're outside the, the visa cap issue. But at a lot of institutions, losing 40% in one year is not the end of the world because, of course, you still got the three previous years if you're at a university, right? At a college, you've only got one year or maybe two years because they're here for eight, 12 months, 24 months, something like that. So a 40% drop in new students at community colleges is going to be disastrous. And I, I think it will be considerably more than that because I think the the what are called the public-private partnership institutions are going to get nuked effectively. So you're probably, Ontario-wide, I would argue, you're probably looking at a drop of 50 or 60% in new visas issued for next year. Yeah, put that all together, that's, that's a couple of billion dollars. Do I think the provincial government's going to offer a couple of billion dollars? No, I absolutely do not think that's what they're offering. And I think if you take into account drop in the real value of domestic students, plus, you know, inflation on the, on the rest of the grant, you know, you're probably looking at a total drop in income of between 5 and 10% for the system as a whole. And that's even with what I think the government's going to do. I don't think the sector is remotely prepared for how bad September is going to be. There's so much kind of that I'm I'm getting out of what you're saying. Like even, you know, yes, universities are not a 40 percent reduction in enrollment is not going to necessarily hit a four year university immediately. But even so, it's like that means that within four years, your total enrollment has been reduced by 40 percent. That's pretty massive in terms of like 
the total operating budget of the university, given that so much of the increase has come from international students in terms of like how they've been able to kind of increase revenues over the past like decade, uh, decade and a half. I also know that sort of the revenue streams in terms of like how universities get government funding from the federal government versus from the provincial government is like somewhat murky and also varies province to province. So my understanding is that the federal government gives money to the provinces to distribute to universities, kind of like in the same way that healthcare transfers also come from the government. But then there's also some level of provincial funding that just comes from the province. Like, what is the current funding model in terms of governments, federal and provincial funding universities? And has that changed over time? The federal government has not given money directly to institutions since 1966 for operating. And we've had various other forms of indirect transfers or, or what are called in respect of transfers. So the, the federal government acknowledges that the provinces spend money on a certain thing and it provides money in respect of it. Does it actually get to the institutions? Yeah, who knows? Money's fungible. I think what's, what you can say has happened in the last, if you want to take a sort of a 30 or 40 year view of this, the government of Canada's contribution to operating funds has gone down. It's been pretty, it's gone up slightly over the, since the Harper government, but it's down compared to 30 years ago. Not much. It's, it, it makes up about 20% of the total funding package. But what the federal government has done instead is put a ton of money into research that it didn't do 30 years ago and a ton of money into student aid that it didn't do 30 years ago. And so if you look at the total, if you take not just money to institutions, but money to post-secondary, the federal charge is about 40 is about 35 40% it's somewhere in there which is exactly what it was 30 40 years ago so they've gone from a system of giving money to institutions to giving money to a greater portion to researchers individual researchers and a greater portion to individual students or their families if you count the education savings grants so yeah the form of money has changed but the percentage has not ontario is not unique in terms of the provincial challenges. I mean, I think if we look to Alberta and what's happened with tuition in Alberta, you know, what we see there is kind of is a reversal of that. The difficulties of managing funding for post-secondary education are national. So you look at Alberta, big tuition increases, really significant cuts to operating funding to Alberta and Calgary. Now the tuition fees are going to be capped next year to 2% from 3%, but for a while there were seven. Nova Scotia, really, you know, steady increases again, now a little more moderate. I'm so glad that you brought up sort of the fact that this isn't an Ontario-specific issue, and it's something that we've seen sort of playing out in Alberta, where we've seen you know, tuition freezes, but then also the province continually cutting the amount of money that they're sort of diverting to universities, uh, that we've seen sort of tuition costs go up in Nova Scotia. I remember at the time that I was applying to university nine years ago, it would have cost me much more money tuition-wise to stay in Nova Scotia versus to pay tuition at most Ontario schools, which felt ridiculous. I do want to talk specifically about Quebec because the situation in Quebec is somewhat unique. What we saw was Francois Legault announcing that out-of-province tuition, so tuition for students that come to McGill Gill Concordia bishops, the English language schools, would rise up from $9,000. So already it was more expensive for out-of-province students to attend university in Quebec. They're now bumping that cost up more for the English language schools specifically. McGill and Concordia are going to take the Quebec government to court over it. I guess, Alex, I want to ask you for your take on this because it feels to me a bit like a decision that is being made not 
really for financial reasons, not really for reasons of kind of enshrining the place of these universities as like financially solvent and productive institutions. It feels to me quite political. Yes. <laughs> Look, the CAC, the Coalition d'Avenir Québec, they lost the by-election on a weekend and uh, early the next week they brought out this policy. They lost it to the Parti Québécois and they figured the perfect political response was to go kick some Anglophone institutions. There's not much more to this. There's there's no policy involved. You know, it's just, it makes them look like they're tough on English. And that seems to be a vote winner, at least in uh, parts of Quebec that make up the, the ruling party's uh, coalition right now. The assumption is if you have fewer Anglophones around, that promotes French. I'm not, I'm not sure I would call that a French promotion policy. And I, and I don't think the CAQ has ever run on a French promotion policy. I can't think offhand of a single policy they've had that actually, you know, makes it easier for newcomers to get French services, makes it easier for them to get French language training. That's not what they're about. Like, this is purely punitive. The actual policy had two wings. Uh, one of them was, in effect, to tax institutions that brought in lots of international students that said basically anything that you charge an international student between $3,000 a year and $20,000 a year, that belongs to the government. And that was a way of saying, we want to take money away from English language institutions, which tend to be more successful in attracting full fee paying students and handing that back through the system and, and, and therefore redistributing it to Francophone institutions. That hit Francophone institutions too, in smaller numbers, right? So disproportionately it hit Anglophone institutions. What they proposed for out-of-province students was at first actually raising fees to $17,000, all of which above $3,000 would go to the government. So again, it doesn't actually improve the, the university's bottom line. What, what they did, and again, that was not, Francophone universities got hit by that too. Francophone institutions, yes, they're absolutely getting hit by this. They're just not getting hit proportionally the same way that Anglophones are. Eventually, that $17,000 got bargained down to $12,000, but the institutions would then have to prove that these out-of-province and international students, and there's a little bit of, of confusion there, which I'll get to in a sec, but out-of-province and international students would have to prove a certain level of French fluency by the time they graduated, right? So the idea was that for this, the incoming class of 2025, sometime in 2028, there'd be some proof of French sufficiency, and it's not clear what that's going to be exactly, and the university is still arguing about that. They were getting a lot of criticism from chambers of commerce and from mayors about $17,000 and the impact they would have. They felt they needed to take a half step back. So they went back to $12,000 plus some kind of test. And now they're still kind of backpedaling, right? Now they're getting really angry at the institutions for how much bad press. God knows what it's going to be like that uh, McGill and Concordia have taken uh, the government of Quebec to court over these changes. This one's got a ways to run. We don't really know how it's going to work. What I do know is that some of those institutions are talking about application reductions of 20-30% from out-of-province and international. So again, there's that storm, right? There's the Quebec thing happening. There's the federal thing happening. That hurts. That hurts. It's not going to be easy for the next year or two for those institutions. This episode is brought to you by Douglas. Y'all know Goldilocks, she got in trouble for falling asleep on Baby Bear's extremely comfortable mattress. And like, sure, she was trespassing in the bear's home. She stole some porridge. She broke a chair. She really had no business being there. But honestly, I understand the appeal of a comfortable mattress. 
maybe Goldilocks had some like awful, lumpy, or maybe too soft mattress at home, and she just really needed a good rest. Thankfully, I don't have this problem. I don't have to break into someone else's house to finally have a good night's sleep because I have a Douglas mattress. You see, Douglas mattresses aren't too hard nor too soft. They're just right. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. It seems as though in this like use of international students in particular, and in the case of Quebec, also of domestic out-of-province students, in using these students as kind of a political football for ends that are not really related to like higher education policy, there is sort of like a lack of coherent narrative in terms of like what the provincial governments across Canada, what the federal government's goals should be when it comes to higher ed. It seems as though for a lot of institutions in the past, having international students has been somewhat of a mark of prestige. It indicates that there's a diversity of thought and experience on campus. In the case of universities like U of T that get a lot of international students for master's and PhD programs, it's sort of a way of saying we have some of the best scholars from around the world. But now there's this other sort of competing narrative of like these same international students are screwing the housing market in large cities so badly that we need to put caps on how many of them come in. At the same time, they've been kind of the only way that university is able to raise funding. So it it kind of like begs to me the question, I guess, like what even is the goal of our universities? Like, is there any sort of like real coherent top-down policy in post-secondary in terms of what our universities should be trying to accomplish, who they're for? Like, are they for domestic students? Are they for international students? What do you folks think on this? I mean, I think it's a side effect of federalism, as most things in Canada, and of fragmentation of powers. But I also think that's not a good enough answer. I don't think a top-down answer is the question, but I think a grappling with how do we support undergraduate and graduate education? What do we want our universities to be? Because right now we seem to want them to be everything, but we don't support them in that way. Alex, what, what do you think? I'm more pessimistic about this than Simona, probably. I just think government's got stupider in the last 20 years or so. And, and not any particular government, but just the the average quality of governance in Canada has gotten stupider. They're not good at policy anymore. Like it's not a, I, There used to be a half dozen governments that were really good at policy. Quebec, I think, had really joined up policy on a lot of issues. And I think that's absolutely true until Legault became premier. And then they started doing everything out of the premier's office the way every other province does, right? And it's all about the feels and 
you know, I look at the shrinking policy capacity of provincial governments right across the country. Uh, you know, the number of people who are in those higher education ministries is shrinking. And so I think, you know, universities and colleges have become much more complicated bodies over the last 30, 40 years, right? They're, they're not the same kind of, of entities that they used to be. And yet, as institutions have become more complicated, the ability of governments to keep up with that complexity, the complexity of the people they're supposed to be regulating, has gone down. Frankly, in some provinces, if you're lucky, it's stayed the same. But in most, I think it's gone down. We got a great higher education system in this country with a decentralized federalism between about 1998 and 2006. Those were the years when research funding was going up, when provincial funding was going up. They didn't always see eye to eye and, and you know, the priorities were not always entirely aligned. But the system worked well when everybody more or less understood that it was a good idea to have a more knowledge-intensive economy, and that meant more money for research, more students going through post-secondary. I think one of the long-term consequences of that second one is that when so many people go to university and college, governments stop treating you like a special jewel, like a special snowflake, we're going to preserve this kind of thing, and they start treating you like a utility. And the main thing about a utility is that it should not create headlines. Right? If a utility creates a headline, that's bad news, right? The power's gone out, sewers are, are backing up or something like that. And I think that's how governments treat universities and colleges. And it's why you see a huge increase over the last four or five years, not so much of, of incursions on institutional autonomy, but of governments losing their minds when particular incidents happen at particular institutions. In a weird way, it's the outcome of the policy success of letting so many people in actually makes governments treat the institutions worse. You know, universities, without being paid for it, like, let me, let me stress this, really, the government has not added a cent in the last 10 years to university budgets. And after, in Ontario, and, and after inflation, that's a 28% cut. And in that time, universities have gotten rid of well, in effect, they've replaced tens of thousands of students who used to take humanities, the cheapest courses available, and they started accepting them into engineering, computer software, science, the most expensive undergraduate programs available. That's something universities did a fantastic job of, of reacting to changes in demand, and they've done it all on their own dime. Okay, University government has not been increased funding by a cent. So if we've got if we've got these supply problems, whose fault is this? And and this will become a kitchen table issue, I think, as as time goes on, because we are in a period where the number of eighteen year olds is growing, and and that that hunt for spaces is going to get difficult. Yeah, I'm really really glad that we've kind of pivoted to the student experience piece of things, because like I, we've spent a lot of time talking about higher level, where is the money coming from, what percentage our budget's going to be reduced by all of these things, but at the end of the day, like the people who are affected by this are primarily like students and their families, like people that actually need to get something out of the education system. You know, I have younger siblings that are in university. I have a lot of friends that I went to undergrad with that are now in graduate education. So I think about these things all the time, as as you clearly do. Simona, since you have a kid who's applying to school now, I guess what I wonder is like, we're talking about these massive funding cuts that are going to kind of roll in over the next couple of years. I think that the extent to which universities are able to kind of shield themselves against it by doing things like juicing enrollment in computer science or business programs that they can charge higher tuition for, doing things like opening new professional schools like TMU did opening a law school. I know Memorial has been considering opening a law school in Newfoundland. What impact do you see this having on the quality of education? Because that's something that I'm, like, very worried about. Like, 
what are people getting for a university degree these days? I got a lot out of mine, but I worry that that's going to be decreasingly true as time goes on. I think that people who know how to get quality and a great experience from universities will continue to do so. You did, you know, as we all know, and I did because I knew how to navigate my way around because I came from a household that had high social capital. What I worry about is that when we underfund universities in the belief that we are protecting access, that we are protecting affordability, we are actually going to make it more difficult for people without the social capital, for the people who need that those additional supports, those additional ways to get engaged, whether it's like student clubs, right, and funding student clubs adequately. Maybe they need additional academic supports. Maybe they need you know, more hand-holding to find out where is that international student experience that I can go on and how do I get funding for it, that those sort of pieces are not going to be there for them. And so we end up undermining access by prioritizing, like true access, by prioritizing the sticker price. When in fact, we, you know, we know like at U of T, for example, you know, 25%, a quarter of, of students come from households with under $50,000 in family income. There are a lot of supports and many Ontario universities right now are providing more financial aid than the provincial government. So when you look to other provinces, you look at Alberta, Alberta universities and students in Alberta, University of Alberta, University of Calgary, are saying it's taking longer. It's taking longer to get mental health. All of the pieces I talked about, it's taking longer to access those additional supports. You're going to see class sizes go up. It will be a thinner, it will be a less pleasant experience. A lot of the university experience is just being 18 to 21 in a closed space with a lot of other people who are 18 to 21 and, and becoming adults together. Like you just, you learn a lot that's outside it. For new students, you know, like younger siblings or, or, or children, in Simone's case, my case, sooner than I'd like, it will be a marginally worse experience. There's no question about that. Where you're seeing the bigger impacts are probably going to be around the research. They're going to be on the research side and the ability to, to attract world-class researchers, retain world-class researchers, and to do world-class research. You're right. I do think a lot of the value of universities, it's like, yes, being in the university environment specifically can give you a lot. Some of it is also just being around a bunch of other young people, exchanging ideas, you know, going to the bar after classes, things like that. I think a lot about sort of how the increased cost of living, especially for universities that are located in major cities, is affecting that. If students are having to work a lot of hours on top of being students, if they're having to commute long distances to get to their classes, like a lot of that experience is eroded by those factors. And I think a lot, I guess, are just about the fact that so many students are being taught not by professors who have full-time jobs at universities, but are being taught like increasingly by sessional lecturers. Sessional lecturers can be great instructors. I had a lot of amazing instructors when I was in school that were sessionals. But thinking about just like the workload that professors are expected to take on for pay that is like deep, you know, increasingly just like not really that competitive or, or good when you look at the amount of qualification that's required to be a sessional, like that's I think one space where to me I see sort of the student experience eroding is that, you know, maybe there's not so much of a difference between a class of 20 versus 25. Either way, it's still pretty small. You can have good and vibrant discussion. But, you know, how much time does your professor really have for you to do things like office hours, to provide like real meaningful feedback on your papers, to engage with you on that deeper level? I think, you know, maybe the classroom experience remains kind of unchanged, but everything that you would get out of it after research opportunities, things like that, I think it is uh, definitely a big problem if those dwindle. 
I want to basically turn kind of towards the future. We've talked a lot about recent changes in funding models for universities, where things have been going, and what universities kind of have been doing to cope with all of this. What do you see as kind of the ways that universities are going to get out of this hole? Like, if you are a university administrator, I know, Simona, you you are actually kind of in that position. What is the number one thing that you would do to make sure that universities can remain financially insolvent and provide this student experience that we've been talking about that we all agree is so important? I'll turn to Alex first. You lucked out on that one, Simona. The, the first thing that is going to happen is everybody's going to offer more master's programs for international students because that's outside the visa cap. And so because because reaction number one in every case at an institution is let's find ways to increase revenue. They're not going to say let's find ways to reduce costs unless they absolutely have to. So number one is you're going to see a lot more master's students because they're outside the cap and that's the game everyone's going to play. Won't happen for this year, but it will happen for next year. One. Two. I hope what institutions will do is start taking a much closer look at how to work with industry. Because I think that is a, in general, if you look at, you know, you compare Canada to the United States, there's a lot less industry money in universities than there is, than there is in the U.S. There's a lot fewer partnerships, either at the research side or on the student side. You know, I think we've got a couple of big institutions that are pretty good at it. Simona's is one of them. But you get beyond that, and I think it's, it's a real problem. There's a fairly snooty tendency in Canadian higher education to to think that universities have a right to industry money, and so they put their corporate relations department underneath advancement, and just sort of say, "Well, we're just going to show up. You, you, we, we deserve your money." Rather than saying, "How do we generate value for each other? You create opportunities for students, do some interesting research." There's good reasons why industry university relationships are hard. They tend to work on different. And they work on somewhat different principles and they have different time frames. So it's not easy to do, but there are lots of countries in the world where they do it. And I suspect you will see more of that in, in Canada. After that, uh, you're into cuts, right? And I think the question is, how smart are you about cutting? I've seen some really dumb examples of cutting both in Canada and the United States where you start with, let's get rid of program X. And that rarely saves you money. <laughs> it's just, it's not a good, you know, the way to cut in a smart way is actually to say, look, we're going to reduce the number of courses offered by getting rid of what are effectively, you know, money sink courses where there's only four or five students in them because it's just, it's just uneconomical to do that. So that is, that is certainly one tack I think you will see. I think at the operational level, certainly you've heard Premier Ford talk about inefficiencies in universities. And well, I tend to take exception to the way he defines inefficiencies. I don't think it's difficult in universities to find places where as universities have grown, bureaucracies have grown faster. And the main tendency is simply that every faculty starts to look like its own individual university, right? So every dean has a chief of staff now. Deans didn't have chiefs of staff 20 years ago. They do now. And every chief of staff needs an administrative assistant. And, you know, things like EDI structures, which used to be at the central level only, tend to start spreading up in, in each individual faculty. That stuff's going to get paired back, right? Communications officers, advancement, government relations. My guess would be we're going to see numbers in those areas drop by 30 or 40 percent. Because I think if, if you take a really good, you know, sort of value for money, look at these areas. Mm. The expenditures are growing a lot faster than the income that's related to those areas. So I, I suspect you will start to see decreases in, in all of those areas in staffing. 
And you know what? Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe, maybe you do need to slim things out every once in a while, because uh, I don't think much of that will affect uh, the student experience very much. If it gets bad, that's when it starts getting troublesome, right? That's when you start having hiring freezes. That's when you start having cuts to student services. That's where it starts getting ugly. But hopefully they they start in some uh, slightly easier places to uh, to pare back. We want to land in a place where we prioritize education, we prioritize the quality of education. What do we need to get there? Is there a way to use technology? Like a lot of universities now, and I'm not even just talking about AI, but can we improve quality by using technology, by using data, by seeing what's the flow of students through a program? How can we intervene in an efficient way to ensure that more students have a good experience, that they're not dropping courses, that we can like identify when people drop a course, when they're not taking advantage of extracurricular activities. So there's things that can be done even while you are becoming more efficient to become more effective. I guess my sort of final question, because I think these are a lot of good ideas in terms of like what universities should be thinking about going forward, what some possible solutions are to the funding crunch that a lot of our institutions are facing I know that, you know, we we talked a little bit, there's this idea of like, there's certain things that universities do, even in terms of the courses that they offer that are sort of like money sinks that can be pared back. We all seem to agree that it's important that universities like train doctors and things like that. I guess what I wonder then is, you know, if we don't solve this funding crunch, and Alex, as you said, like if it does get really bad and we start to see things like hiring freezes, salary freezes, and sort of those more essential functions of universities being pared back, what do we stand to lose as like a society? You know, what does it actually mean if we have fewer people that are able to access university education, even for those courses that maybe seem less essential on face? Because to me, I think that's very bleak. Like I got so much out of my fake gender studies degree that everyone likes to make fun of. Like I actually don't think it was a fake degree at all. And the notion to me of fewer people being able to access, you know, even STEM education that's like not super job focused or humanities education to me, I find that very troubling. I don't know. What, what are the stakes here, I guess, as a final takeaway for our listeners? I think reduced access to education is the least likely outcome of this crisis. And one of the reasons is simply that uh, every new student brings tuition in. And so institutions actually have a reason to increase enrollment most times. It's one of the reasons why you know enrollment growth in Canada over the last 20, 30 years has been much higher than it has been in a number of countries with free tuition, just because it makes financial sense for institutions to expand access. Where I think we're in danger of running into serious problems in the economy is it has to do with the quality of education and not the uh, the quantity, if you will. I think in a lot of areas, both in colleges and universities, it's important to have well-trained personnel coming out. And training, to a large degree, is actually about capital. What kind of machines are you actually learning on? Are they are they up to date? If Canada wants to attract, you know, to have the best scientists and attract the best scientists, do you have the best science labs? All right, that's that's a real question. We got that 15 years ago. I mean, this is the thing that I find so frustrating about Canadian politics. In that period between about 1998 and 2006, the country was Broadly speaking, every political party understood the need to put make investments in this area because this is the way that we were going to be a modern country, that we were not going to be hewers of wood and drawers of water. And then sometime in the mid-2000s, when the commodity super cycle came in and 
you know, gold is a thousand bucks an ounce and oil is a hundred bucks a barrel and wheat is 10 bucks a bushel. I mean, chimps can run the economy when the, when, when natural resource prices are like that. And we just decided, eh, who needs this science stuff? And we've been reaping that for the last 15 years. If we want to be a genuine knowledge-based economy, you have to invest in making sure people are coming out with those top skills. And I haven't seen a political party in this country in the last 10 years who's actually made that a priority. And it doesn't matter what part political party it is. I, you know, right-wing parties don't want to give money to higher education. Left-wing parties want to give money to students, but not institutions. Nobody seems to think that the quality of education matters. And until that changes, I don't think we're going to come close to solving the problems we need to solve. What I would say, Matea, I think I would pick up on on your degree and 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 my degree as well. So I have, you know, like three degrees in political science, which was fascinating, but per- perhaps for some people more practical than I have found them to be. But I wouldn't ever say I wouldn't do them again. So I would do them all over again. I also teach in a BA program at a music school. And so I probably am in contact, you know, I do one course a year with students who are really grappling with what is this going to get me? They are classical and jazz music students. And I think it's important that whatever we do and however we rebalance the funding, that we rebalance it in such a way that people who want to study political science, who want to be musicians, who want to study gender studies, who even in today's world want to go to journalism school, have the freedom to do that. And they have the support to do that. And that is a foundation for thinking. I mean, I sound like such a complete, you know, social sciences grad, but we do need to counter misinformation. We need to be able to use evidence to make policy. Like this is what this is about. And so we need to train people to be able to do that and to have a good time while they're doing that with people of their own age. Quality also involves a degree of freedom in what to study for for students. Once we are certain that we've covered the highly qualified personnel. There's no shortage of students who want to do that. And then let's make sure that it's like a cohesive education. I think Simona ended our conversation on such a good note about the value of degrees that aren't practical in the way that we would conventionally think of them. I think any social sciences and humanities degree, if delivered well, can teach so much in terms of critical thinking, media literacy, being able to access different perspectives and points of view. My degree has definitely made my life so much richer in terms of how I'm able to engage with my work here at Candleland, but also in terms of like how I read books, how I watch movies, how I interact with the world around me. And I'm so grateful for having had the opportunity to engage in that. But beyond that, I think in this episode, we were able to talk a lot about the important practical work that's being done in universities by more research-based degrees, the innovations in healthcare and climate science and AI and things that we get out of our institutions in Canada. We stand to lose so much if our universities fail. I think that, you know, in the past, Canadian universities have been world leaders in research and development, also world leaders in promoting that kind of social sciences and humanities critical thinking We lose so much if people are not able to just like loaf off and really focus on their studies in undergrad. I think so much of what I got out of my undergraduate degree 
was not just like what I learned in class, but what I learned from my peers who lived near campus, who I hung out with, what I got from my interactions with professors outside of class hours. I was so lucky to have professors at the Center for Sexual Diversity Studies at U of T who really made sure to be available outside of class hours for students who wanted to learn more, who wanted to engage in like the wider community outside the university through their engagements with professors. Like, I got drinks with profs after class and just, like, shot the shit with my classmates. It was so valuable to have those experiences and opportunities. And I want to circle back to what we heard at the top of the episode from sessional lecturer Morgan Rooney, who works at Carleton, talking about just, like, the financial pressures that instructors are under. If we end up in a situation where due to funding cuts at universities, more and more instructors are not full-time professors, are simply contract laborers who often have to reapply for their job every year or every semester, all of these sort of external things that professors are able to do, whether that's even just devoting a lot of time to grading, being available for office hours, being able to supervise students' research, like oftentimes sessional lecturers are not eligible to do things like that because they're not paid for it or they're, they don't like get funding to have research assistance. All of these things that make university education rich beyond simply the degree and the piece of paper that you get at the end are going to go away. I think about my younger siblings who are at university now. I think about, you know, people like Alex and Simona who have kids that are going to school soon. And I worry that the richness that I was able to access as a university student is something that's going to be lost as time goes on. Universities can be incubators for so much good stuff, you know, friendships, research, innovation, just like art ideas, you know, it seems to me like a lot of universities have been able to cope so far. But when we look at the stagnant funding combined with the massive drop in incoming tuition fees that we're going to see, I think things could get bad pretty fast. I really, really hope that governments, federal and provincial, will take a look at our universities and recognize the value that they provide and fund them appropriately. Because otherwise, yeah, things could get seriously rough for our institutions. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when I will be in Halifax visiting my mother for her birthday. Happy early birthday, Patty. You're a real one. Let us know what you're pissed off about, what you've been watching closely, and what you want to hear us discuss in the world of Canadian politics. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and you can also DM us on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Alex on Twitter at Alex Usher, H-E-S-A. You can find Simona at S-R Chiosi. That's S-R-C-H-I-O-S-E. The oldest chartered university in Canada is King's College. It was founded in Windsor, Nova Scotia in 1789 and moved to Halifax in 1920 after a fire destroyed a large part of the original campus. King's College is now an affiliate institution of Dalhousie University, and it's best known for its foundation year program, which is one of those programs where you get 18-year-olds to read a bunch of, like, classic books or something. It actually sounds like it rocks. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Sam Connard, with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, 
And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Speak.